Take your Bibles and look over at Luke chapter 16. Some of you, when you saw how I ended last week, were wondering, okay, what's he going to do with that one verse? (laughs) We read Luke chapter 16, verse 18 last week, and then... (laughs) I didn't deal with it much. You were like, man, this guy's a glutton for punishment. He's going to preach on just that verse next week? And the answer is yes. We are going to look at selected scriptures today, and we are going to try to get a... a I guess you could say this is my attempt at a, uh, a textual sermon a little bit, like... Spurgeon, uh, to try to give you a theology of marriage um, and divorce from this passage. I'll get you in context. I'll, Lord willing, be able to show you how this verse fits in its context and what it means. And then I'm gonna, we're going to look around. So you are going to be flipping around in your Bible a little bit today. And my hope is, is that we will get an under, uh, accurate understanding of God's Holy standard for marriage. Let's look at our verse, and we'll read just to get in context, read from 14 down through 18. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. But God knows your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached. And everyone is forcing his way into it. But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Last week while we were in Luke chapter 16, we saw Jesus confronted the self-righteous Pharisees. He confronted them for seeking to justify themselves before men. He exhorted them to know that what the world highly esteems is detestable in the sight of God. As verse 15 states, Jesus then called them to do what many of the sinners and tax collectors were doing, and that is to violently seek to enter the kingdom of God by denying themselves and following the king of the kingdom. That's in verse 16. Many are forcing their way into the kingdom. So he's calling the Pharisees to deny themselves and follow Christ. Jesus was exhorting the self-righteous Pharisees to forsake their works righteousness system and turn to Him. Jesus was... The gospel. Next we saw Jesus called the Pharisees to 
realized that if they rejected the gospel, then they would be judged by that high standard of the law. If they reject Christ, they would be judged by the very law they said they kept. In verse 17, he highlights this. Jesus stated, not one part of the law would fail. You are going to be judged, in a sense, by that law. If you say, I live by that law, then you will be judged to the smallest, minute portion of it. Jesus said, not one part will fail. He meant, if the Pharisees sought to justify themselves by keeping the law, instead of denying themselves and following the Messiah then they would be judged by that high standard of God's law. So today we see Jesus addressed one of the laws that the Pharisees had redefined and misinterpreted in order to justify themselves before men. Ladies and gentlemen, legalists are hypocrites. They are masters of reinterpretation. When the law is applied to them personally, they change the meaning to mean something else. But when the law is applied to someone else, they are experts at it. You are really good at falling short at this when they're looking out. But when they see the law and they see the weight of the law, they reinterpret the law so that they can accomplish the law. That's what a hypocrite does. They are masters at hypocrisy. For the Pharisees, the law was an instrument of self-exaltation instead of a tutor that was supposed to lead them to God and to seek forgiveness from God and dependence upon Him. So you might say, how in the world were these Pharisees able to read the law and say, I keep the law? If you read the first five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, I don't know about you, I struggle getting through just a, one book saying I can do what God wants. But they go through all five and they say, I do it. How in the world do they say this? Well, what they did and what a legalist does is they redefine and misinterpret the law in order to avoid being condemned by it. It's called reading the Bible with pride glasses on. In other words, you get those glasses on and you think you're something special and you start to read the Bible in the way that you want to interpret it. Isn't it appropriate in our day, unfortunately, that if we live in a postmodern world where every interpretation is up for each person's own interpretation, we are in trouble, aren't we? Ultimately, that's what pride does. It says, my interpretation is the only one that matters. That's what the Pharisees were good at. We all too often, ladies and gentlemen, study and learn Scripture with an eye on others instead of a goal of applying truth to our own hearts. We do this because no one likes to be exposed. Does anybody like to be exposed? <laughs> If we study Scripture, we see our sinfulness. We will not want to be exposed by the truth unless we understand the gospel. 
See, if we understand the gospel, we want to know our sinfulness. Why? For we want to serve our king. We know that he died in our place and we want to forsake the sin and turn to him. So we want to be exposed. We don't care what anybody else thinks. Our goal is, God, show us our hearts. And we know they're wicked. And show us our sinfulness. Why? So we can turn from it and find joy in following Him. But if we are seeking to rely upon ourselves to deliver ourselves, then being rebuked by the Word is painful and irritating. Again, Unless we can eliminate the wicked process of deflection and misinterpretation, we will be a bunch of modern-day Pharisees. Stop deflecting. Stop misinterpreting. Read the Bible for what it is, be exposed by it, and go to Christ. There's your hope. I'm convinced the two primary problems in America, American cultural Christianity are this. One, a lack of true God-intended meaning and understanding of the Bible as it's really revealed. So in other words, it's misinterpreted. Second, I believe, and probably worst of all, is the second problem. A lack of applying the Bible to our own lives properly. I am completely convinced that some of the churches that preach expository, preach great messages, have all these things, all this truth out there, but it never hits the heart. It's like getting filling up and getting all this head knowledge. But then when you spend any time at all with some of these people that have this head knowledge, they're prideful, arrogant, and they, you don't even want to be around them. And you realize that you're like that. <laughs> or you've got the bad interpretation, the seeker-sensitive church that just misapplies everything and misinterprets everything. And so there's no application of Scripture to their hearts. The Pharisees had the same two problems. They misinterpreted Scripture to avoid the weight of the law. And they always applied Scripture to others, not themselves. That's what they did. In today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus took just one common misinterpretation of the law and confronted the Pharisees with their self-righteousness. The Pharisees were very much like Christianity in our culture today. They held standards that they could achieve and misinterpreted any standard that God called them to accomplish. The law the Pharisees had misinterpreted dealt with divorce and remarriage. I think this is just like our cultural Christianity today. Same thing. Look at our passage, Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Man, did he like just turn the light switch on. (laughs) I mean, he didn't hold anything back, did he? Check 
this one out. The Pharisees had taken the law and twisted it to allow for divorce for just about anything. The common thought of the day was the Pharisees could divorce if she or he saw his wife and didn't really like her, in effect. Anything, any spot or anything in her, hey, get rid of her. This is why Jesus was asked in Matthew 19.3. He, he was asked this question. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Why would they say that? Well, because that was the common thought of the day. Divorce was fine. No big deal. The Pharisees knew that many people had been divorced for all kinds of reasons. So they thought, oh, let's get all those people that have been divorced mad at Jesus so they'll take him out. So let's ask this question and test him. Because after all, pretty much everybody in the audience was probably what? Divorced. <laughs> or they knew somebody they loved that was divorced. So let's ask him this question and get him in trouble. There were two schools of thought on divorce. The most favored view was from Rabbi Hillel. That's H-I-L-L-E-L. He taught that divorce, by the way, inside your bulletin, you notice you have blank notes. Yeah, you see those blank, it's just blank sheet. Okay, write down all the scripture references that we go through because you're going to need to go back and read them. That's going to be your big thing that you need to really focus on. Do you understand? I'm not going to have this fancy outline. Write every one of them down because you need to go back and study it. So Rabbi Hillel, he taught that divorce was permissible for any number of reasons. For example, a wife who burnt her husband's food at night could be divorced. A wife turning around in the street really quickly and her wind got up underneath the dress and too much of her legs were shown, whoop, she's out of there, he can divorce her. A wife who spoke so loudly towards her husband that the neighbors could hear, she's gone. You can divorce her for that. Or the worst, if a husband found another woman who looked better than his wife, then he could send the first wife away because she was unclean after all. She didn't live up to the expectations of the man that saw something prettier. Wow. That pretty much allowed for divorce whenever the Pharisees wanted. That's called a misinterpretation of the law in order to accomplish their wicked hearts. So in our passage in Luke 16, 18, Jesus is confronting this misinterpretation of the law for the purpose of self-justification. Now I want to remind you of the main theme of our section in 16. Remember... In light of what we know about God and eternity, we must act accordingly or wisely. Once you start figuring out who God is and what He's all about, then we should respond appropriately. Like the unrighteous steward did, remember? He acted to protect himself. Once you understand this standard, you better act to protect yourself. What is that? Seek Christ. 
Look, as we go through this today, I want to challenge you all to examine your own hearts, not judge someone else's heart. And then I want to challenge you to act appropriately, respond appropriately in faith, in Christ. Singles, you say, well, we're going to talk about marriage and divorce. This doesn't apply to me. Oh, not true. Not true. Many of you talk about you want to be married. You better go into this knowing what you're getting into. And as we will see later, you are married. We will talk about that in a little bit. Look again at our passage, Luke 16, 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Wow. Jesus gives two interpretations of the law that are pretty clear, yet they are also very strict and narrow and stringent. Would you not agree? Now, immediately, there are two thoughts that come to mind when we read these verse, this verse. This appears to leave, really, no room at all for divorce. Am I the only one that sees that? It seems as though when you read that, it, everyone who divorces his wife and marries an, another commits adultery. Everyone means what? And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Ooh, that even gets the ones that were single that married. No room, is there? Second, this passage appears to contradict some of the other passages that leave a little bit of room for divorce. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. In context, it's crucial. Jesus is giving a response to the Pharisees with the wrong view of divorce. Again, the vast majority of divorces in the time of the Pharisees were for sinful and selfish reasons, and that's mostly of the Pharisees. Jesus is in effect calling all those that he's talking to adulterers. (laughs) He's looking at every one of those Pharisees and looking them right in the eye and saying, You are an adulterer. Woo! For somebody that thinks they're righteous, this is a scary thought, isn't it? Again, this pronouncement from Jesus is very strict and unyielding. I believe Jesus is confronting the sinfulness of his audience. Now, listen, ladies and gentlemen, they thought they were righteous. But Jesus says, in effect, in effect, you are adulterers. Now, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 24 because this is the passage that they misinterpret. You can go ahead and start making your way over there. Deuteronomy 24. The Pharisees, as I mentioned, had misinterpreted a passage in the law. So I want to go back and look at this passage. And I want you to notice some observations concerning this passage in Deuteronomy 24. If we're not careful in our interpretation of the passage, we will misinterpret it just like the Pharisees did. Jesus was correcting this misinterpretation in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. But again, this misinterpretation is what a legalist 
or someone who thinks they are good does. This is what they do all the time. They take every passage they can and they twist it so that they can be permissible to do it. Instead of turning to God in humble repentance, the Pharisees misinterpreted the law to make it accomplishable for them. So let's look. Deuteronomy 24. Let's read this passage. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. Since she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Whoa. There are two types of laws given in the Mosaic Law. And I want you to get these. These two types. There's, there are laws that gave requirements for maintaining righteousness. Very important. Laws that were given to maintain righteousness. Second, there were laws given to minimize the consequences of an already sinful behavior. I want you to think about this for a second. There's a law that there's laws that say, don't go that way, it's unrighteous. Don't do this, do this, it's righteous to do this. Okay? Then there's a second set that gave laws knowing that sin was going to happen, and therefore, don't go this far, because it's even worse. It's to protect the people. In Deuteronomy 24, it's the second kind of law. This is a law given to help minimize the consequences of man's sinful propensity to change wives when they get tired of them. Do you hear me? Listen closely. This is a law given to help minimize the consequences of men that just want to change wives at the drop of the hat. Ladies and gentlemen, God knew we are sinful people. And God knew that the nation of Israel were sinful people. And He gave laws to protect them from going to the nth degree of where they were going to go. This was one of them. Notice, it starts with, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that he finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. The idea here of when this happens, because it's obviously going to happen, that's what he means. It's obvious, <laughs> you Israelites... <laughs> You are going to find no favor with your wife and you're going to find something and you're going to divorce her. This is what's going to happen because you are wicked people. Don't go to the nth 
degree here. It's an abomination to trade wives. The idea is, is when this happens, because it's obviously going to happen, don't treat your women like harlots. That's what he's saying. See, this was a law that God gave because he knew how wicked they were. He was trying to protect these ladies from becoming treated with great evil. Notice this is very similar to Deuteronomy 24.7. Look at 24.7, just a few verses down. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen, of the sons of Israel, and he deals with him violently or sells him, then the thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Now wait a second. If a man is caught kidnapping any of his countrymen, isn't kidnapping bad? Why didn't he say, if any man's caught kidnapping a countryman, you die? He didn't. He knows how wicked they are. There's going to be kidnapping that happens. Take somebody, make them be my slave. If he deals with him, though, however, next step, violently, he's going to what? He needs to die. It's very much like 24. Is he saying in verse chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, Okay, divorce, it's okay, go ahead. Just don't do too much of it. No, he's saying, look, you wicked people, you're going to divorce. You're going to divorce. Please, understand it's an abomination to God when you continually wife swap. That's what he's getting at. That's the heart of the message. Now, what the Pharisees of Jesus' day had done is they took the law of Deuteronomy 24 and made it a law of consent. A law of consent. This gives me consent. Anything that's indecent, I can give her a divorce. Just whatever you do, don't go back to that first one. And then, look, the second one, if the latter husband turns against her, okay, so I can turn against my wife. Just make sure you give her a certificate of divorce so she's not out there by herself. Defend for herself. She's got to be able to find another husband. So they turned it into a law of consent, not a law of restraint, which is what God was doing. He was trying to restrain their evil. He was trying to say, look, you evil people, don't go this far. Stop. And they turned it into consent. This indecency was then defined by burning food, growing old, compared to other ladies showing your legs off. This was a horrible twisting of the scripture by Rabbi Hillel. But... Typical of a hypocrite. Correct? But Moses was not saying this. By the way, this is not a passage that gives permission for divorce. Even there, it doesn't give permission. Because if it was indecency, if this was talking about adultery, look at Deuteronomy 22.22. That would be a contradiction. 
If he finds his wife doing indecency, isn't that adultery? So, no, the law for adultery was what? Death. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Wow. Here you go. Here is the standard from the Mosaic law on adultery. You ready? Lay it out there for you. Death penalty. We wouldn't have a planet. We wouldn't have a country. I mean, I'm fairly sure we would eliminate 75% of our population. See, God's requirement for adultery is death. If someone was to say Deuteronomy 24 says in the case of adultery, you can divorce, it would contradict Deuteronomy 22.22. The fact is, God knew the depravity of man's heart, and He knew He was not able to be faithful to one wife. And so He warns the people, don't go down this wicked path because it leads to abomination before God. This was a law of restraint of evil, not a law of consent. But Rabbi Hillel made it a law of concession. So, the law of God was not condoning or suggesting divorce. It just merely was a restraint on the evil practices because of their wicked hearts. What does this show? Well, this shows that God is merciful because He knew mankind was so wicked that He could not be monogamous. So, He placed borders around them to try to help protect them from getting what they really deserved, which was death immediately. Notice Jesus says this in Matthew 5. Turn over there. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, here we see Jesus takes and raises the bar back up and says, stop this wicked practice of changing wives whenever your fleshly lusts are not fulfilled. God has and will always value marriage. Get it. Very important. God values marriage. He established the gracious gift of marriage before the fall. It was a gift from God. And if you are married, God has been gracious to you. However, notice the little exception clause that I underline there. Except for the reason of unchastity. This appears to give an out of marriage if a person is unfaithful. I believe this does allow for divorce in certain situations. But, I want to stress this. 
the word is allow, not suggest. Allow, not suggest. And you might say, well, wait a second, I thought adultery deserved death. Well, it does. <laughs> but God has been merciful. By the time of Jesus, he has begun to what? Allow them to not fulfill the death penalty every time somebody is caught in adultery. Because after all, Israel might not even be around. Notice, however, Jesus develops it more in Matthew 19. Go over to Matthew 19. Before you go there, wait, wait, go back to Matthew 5 for a second. Before you get there. This is the time I want to take and turn the spotlight over to somebody else for a second. Okay, because some of us in here that have never been divorced before or single are starting to think, I can handle that. Just not going to ever get married. <laughs> not going to ever get divorced. I'm okay. <laughs> I just want to turn the light on you just a second. Look just a few verses earlier. Matthew 5, 22. Remember, don't fall into the Pharisee's trap. Because after all, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Ah, that pretty much condemned everybody in the room. And if that wasn't enough, look at Matthew 5, 27. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone looks at a woman with lust in her heart already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, so you deserve stoning too. Get it? That's the standard. Listen. This means most everyone in this room is deserving of being stoned and thrown into eternal hell forever. You understand? So be careful being the Pharisee when it comes to looking at other people with their marriage and divorce issues. Matthew 19, let's look at it. So Pharisees came to Jesus... Testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So, they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the very beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, 
Whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Again, what do we see here? God's high standard for marriage. We can read these passages and try to twist them however we want to, but one thing becomes more and more clear as you read all these passages together. God greatly values marriage. He wants husbands and wives to stay together. Notice, Jesus even says, Moses allowed for divorces because of your hardness of heart. Yes, even in this passage, there does appear to be an allowance for it in the case of immorality, which is another word for adultery. By that time, again, adultery was not part of the death penalty. This was only because of the mercy of God. He wasn't giving them what they deserved. Because if he did, there would be no Messiah. Why would there be no Messiah? Because there would be no nation. You understand? Israel would have been wiped out by this time if they would have kept the law. Folks, God's original design for marriage, and thus his best and his greatest desire for every marriage, is that it lasts forever. That's God's design. That's his best. Now, does God allow for divorce? Yes. But it's definitely not his best. I would argue that God allows for divorce, and we see it in the way he divorced Israel. Really? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 3, please. Jeremiah chapter 3. We are getting into it today, aren't we? Some of y'all are like, what? God divorced someone? Yes, he divorced a nation. He divorced a nation. Jeremiah 3, 6. Yes, y'all are all going to write all these verses down and you're all going to go home and you're going to study this on your own, okay? Now, if you will stay with me the whole time, I promise you, Lord willing, by the end of this, you're going to worship God, okay? By the end of this, you're going to worship God. But you have got to stay focused. You've got to stay focused. And there's going to be a thousand distractions, but don't. Stay focused, Okay? Listen, then the Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, have you seen what faithless Israel did? Israel was the northern tribes. It was Israel and Judah. Israel had been broken up into two nations. Israel, the northern ten tribes. Judah, the, and I can't even say it because this passage goes against it, the godly southern tribes. Because they're not godly, you'll see in a second. Israel, the northern tribes, Judah, and Benjamin became known as Judah, the godly southern tribes. Not godly, as you'll see. Have you seen what faithless Israel, northern tribes, did? She went up on a very high hill and under every green tree, and she was a harlot there. 
What that means is, is she followed false gods. She embraced false gods. Notice it says, I thought after she has done all these things, she will return to me. But she did not return. Her treacherous sister Judah saw her behavior. Oh, they're not godly, as you can see. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet, her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. Did God divorce Israel? Well, it looks like it. He gave a writ of divorce. That's what it says and that's what it means. Because of the lightness of her harlotry, and she polluted the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with all her heart, but rather in deception, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Look, 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 look. Return, faithless Israel, the one I gave a writ of divorce to. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity that you have transgressed against the Lord your God and have scattered your favor to the strangers under every green tree and you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you and I will take you one from a city and two from a family and I will bring you to Zion. What we have here is God divorced Israel, gave them a certificate of divorce for seeking other gods. Harlotry, adultery, they embraced other gods. But God is so gracious and kind that He still calls out to Israel to return to Him. Repent, turn back to me. Now the scary thing is, I don't believe that Israel has returned completely. And I believe that the passage that follows in 15 through 18, you'll see, He let Judah go too. And as of now, there appears to be a divorce that's happened. Between God and Israel and Judah, God has allowed them to go. Now, when will the repentance happen that's mentioned in 15? Look. Then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased. Where? In the land, declares the Lord. They will no longer say, The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord... And it will not come to mind, nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it, it be made again. What? At that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Has Israel ever said this? Not yet. And all the nations will be gathered to it? That hasn't happened yet. To Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil hearts. Israel and Judah have not done that. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel? What is that? By the way, 
just a side note here. If you say the church has replaced Israel, did it replace Judah too? And you can't. Because that passage distinguishes the two. It's talking about the nations. In those days, the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together for, from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. This is land promises being fulfilled for Israel and Judah. Ladies and gentlemen, this divorce has not been reestablished. And this marriage has not been reconvened. This will happen then, in the future, at the millennium. The divorce is given by God to Israel and Judah, but the desire is still for repentance. And one day, after the hardening takes, is taken away, the partial hardening, Israel and Judah will return. Folks, I see this as a model for our marriages too. Listen closely. This is application, implication, I think. There should always be a hope for repentance and restoration. Now, does God allow for divorces? Yes. But is God best for us to divorce? It is not His best. His best would be for marriages to stay together. That's where I land. You might disagree. Study the Bible. Now, I want you to take it one step further. Look at this. This is staggering stuff. This is great stuff. Go over to Ephesians chapter 5. This is good. Wait till you see this. I think things have changed dramatically since that time in Jeremiah 3, where he said, go. With the institution of the new covenant. The new covenant believer. That is true believers in Jesus since his death, burial, and resurrection. Are part of a totally new relationship with God. A relationship with an even higher standard. Did you hear me? An even higher standard has come on the scene. A high standard. It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. As you turn there, ladies and gentlemen, what about the church? What about those who are in the new covenant? See, the new covenant makes for a relationship between God and His bride, the church. And the church includes every single individual within the church. While God gave a certificate of divorce to Israel, nowhere in Scripture does it appear that God grants a divorce to His church. Praise God! And everybody that believes in the doctrines of grace says the same thing. Why? Because God does not Send away his bride. He will not send us away in the new covenant. What he did was, is he gave a spirit within us to keep us. See, he takes care of us and protects us. Even when we are unfaithful, he is faithful. That's a great truth. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. 
He Himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word. Look at 27. That He might present to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Now, if you don't pay attention in this next couple minutes, you are going to miss miss the punchline. You better pay attention closely. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Now here we go. Because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become what? One flesh. Now that's a quote from where? Genesis. Genesis. Look at verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What? The Genesis passage is talking about Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respect her husband. Folks, at first glance, we might think that this whole passage is a passage Mike wanted to throw in there so that he could get all husbands and wives to look at their marriage. Or even better. The Apostle Paul put in there just to get all husbands and wives to look at their own marriage. Is that what the passage is all about? (laughs) You know what's interesting? Yes and no. Let me explain. At first glance, it's all about marriage of man and woman, right? But notice that little verse in verse 32. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. What is the mystery Paul is speaking about here? Well, the answer is given by Paul in the second part of that verse. I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He tells us. What's the mystery? It's a union between husband and wife that is seen in Christ and the church. Let me explain. What Paul is speaking about in verse 31 The two shall become one flesh. The union relationship of marriage partners. What? I thought this passage in Genesis 2 was about references to husbands and wives becoming one. Yes. But Paul says that this passage quoted from Genesis in some amazing way is also pointing to a greater relationship. It's a greater relationship. The relationship between Christ and the church. Now what does that mean? The relationship between Christ and His bride? The two shall become one flesh? See folks, listen closely. 
The marriage relationship is an amazing way in God's divine economy to give a picture or illustration to the world of a relationship between Christ and the church. Now, now wait, listen. What I'm saying is this. How important are marriages? Very important. Because marriages are supposed to be an illustration of God's relationship with His bride. Do you understand? Do you get it? One commentator described this mystery the following way. The mystery thus refers to the union of husband and wife in marriage and as divinely instituted illustration of the close and intimate union between Christ and His church. See, God knew that mankind was wicked and He allowed Israel on the scene to show how wicked humanity was. But He had a plan for a bride. And his bride was the church. And all that God did pointed forward to that relationship. Our marriages should be a picture to the world of Christ's relationship with his bride, the church. So what can we learn from this? Listen, Christians. All true Christians, if our marriages are supposed to be illustrations of Christ's relationship with us, then shouldn't we be committed by the grace of God to remain with them forever? Shouldn't we? Is Christ committed to us? How much do you send? Does He send you away? See, all of us in here say, I can't lose my salvation. No way, I can't lose my salvation because Christ's grip on me is much stronger than my grip on Him. If that be so, if that be so, and it is, shouldn't our grip on our marriages be as strong as His grip on us? Because Christ works in His bride. I know, this is hard. I'm probably going to clear out half the crowd this week for sure. God ordained the marriage to be a reflection of His relationship with His bride. Second, in our marriages, should we be sacrificial to our spouses as Christ was to us? Listen, folks. Listen closely. We live in a society and time that sells us a lie. That marriage is about getting your own personal fleshly needs met. But aren't you glad Christ wasn't about His own personal fleshly needs? Because if He was, we would be going to hell. He laid down His life for His bride even before we ever trusted in Him. He took the wrath we deserved even before we lived. 
He moved to take our sin and our judgment so that we would not have to. Now that's a husband, isn't it? The high level of commitment of Christ has been shown to us, should drive us to maintain, by the grace of God, our own marriages. He came to save you, not because of what you did. He came to die so that you would not have to. He came to save you so that you could enjoy Him forever. And He did this not because we deserve it, but because He loves you. By the way, singles, are you looking for this kind of relationship? One that is totally committed to the other person's joy and good, even if it means costing your own life? You aren't ready until that's what you're about. That's a hard statement. It's the truth. If you are all about yourself, you ain't ready. Because that's not the marriage relationship. Third, I think we need to all take a step back away from this whole debate of marriage and divorce and ask this question. What in our marriages reflects God's relationship with His bride? Does your marriage reflect that? What have we done that reflects the kind of commitment that Christ has shown towards us? Has anyone here taken the wrath of God for their spouse? No. You say, well, I've taken some wrath. (laughs) I've taken some anger. But you hadn't taken the wrath of God for your spouse. (laughs) You say, oh, but you don't know, Mike, what my spouse is like. Well, remember, ladies and gentlemen, what your Savior did for you. And he knows fully well what your heart's about. We treat Jesus. Folks, you just don't understand. We don't understand. We are so sinful, we don't realize how sinful we are. The way we treat our spouse and the way we expect them to treat us better is so pharisaical, it's scary. What we are doing is we are saying, I want to be treated like Jesus. But I ain't going to treat anybody like Jesus. And all of this sin in our marriages are doing what? Killing our Savior more. More wrath upon Him. More wrath upon Him. More wrath upon Him. This should be sad. You say, well, I'm single. 
I just wish I could have a wife that I could struggle with. You do have a spouse. You do. His name is Jesus. How do you treat him? Jesus is your first love. Are you sacrificially serving him and his bride? So what we do, what do we do? What do we do? Is there anybody in the room that's not convicted? Don't raise your hand. What do we do? Well, here's what we do. We run to Christ. See, don't you remember back in Luke 16, that was his whole point. He raised the bar for the Pharisees to get them to see what? They fall short. So that they would do what? Embrace him. Run to the gospel. You say, well, I have blown it with a marriage. I've blown it with another marriage. I've blown it with my wife. I've blown it being single. Run to Christ. He loves you. He's faithful. Go to Him. Die to self. Embrace the Lamb. He is good. He loves you. It's very appropriate to finish with what we had, what we started with. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly, abundantly, Oh, Lord. Your word is powerful and and good and true. You desire us, God, to run to you. Oh, Father, we are needy people, prone to sin and and have sinned against our spouses and against you. Oh God, help us to value marriage as you value your marriage with us, the church. Take our lives, Lord. Use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.